Good. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it to Mark chapter 15. We have one more Sunday after this in Mark's Gospel. So we'll look at uh, another big chunk. We'll look at verses 16 through 41 uh, this morning. And even though we are not going to be in Mark's Gospel after next Sunday, there's still Mark journals out on the table. So uh, if you guys want one of those, those are free. You don't have to. There's other books on the table that we we like for you to donate to the book fund. But the the Mark journals you can take. They're free. So just take them. I think we still have a whole box of them back in the um, back in our storage unit. So so we have plenty to go around. So if you want to give away those for Christmas gifts, save you some money. Feel free. Feel free to do it. Put them in a stocking. All right, Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 41. This is God's word. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, putting it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray and we'll jump right in. God, thank you uh, just for this reminder, this stark reminder of what it is that Jesus has done for us 
that he was mocked, that he was crucified, that he was dead. And he did all of these things uh, for your glory ultimately, but also for our good. So help our ears to be attentive uh, again to this gospel message. Uh, help it help us not to just gloss over and and just to think that we have heard this already and we don't need to hear it again because we do need to hear it again. And so help us to to, to behold wonderful and glorious things from your word right now. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So if you've been with us since last fall and maybe if you've jumped in here and there, you know that. Um, one of the question, the question that that Mark is seeking to answer for us in his gospel or for his readers is who is Jesus? I don't bring that up every single time, but just just so you know, that is the theme that, that Mark is kind of weaving into his gospel here, and it's still the question that needs to be answered even at the very end of his gospel. Even at the very end of his gospel, uh, the question or the answer to the question is still pretty unclear to those around him. And it's, and it's through this, I think, we, we, we can become, just as 21st century Americans uh, in, our com- in our comfortable country and, and in, in the ways that we kind of live our lives, we can begin to, and even within the church even, we can begin to really misinterpret Jesus still. We can still get the answer to this question wrong, even if we've been walking uh, with Jesus for a long, long time. We can still get the answer wrong. And it's always the temptation for us. It's always the the temptation for us to kind of enter into this kind of ho-hum attitude about who Jesus is. And then we really forget what it is that we professed so long ago. The poet... Christian Wyman, he brings this sort of thing up in his memoir, which is titled My Bright Abyss, and he writes this. And he's, he's speaking from, he's a new Christian. He's not, I mean, I wouldn't let him teach a Sunday school class here or anything like that. But, I mean, I think he gets this right here in just his observation. He says, one truth then is that Christ is always being remade in the image of man. Which means that his reality is always being deformed to fit human needs or what humans perceive their needs to be. And this, the deformity that, that he's speaking of here, it, it'll continue to persist in your life if you refuse to see Jesus as he's presented to you in the gospel. Jesus doesn't give us alternate, alternative views of himself. The views that Jesus gives us of himself are found here clearly taught in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's where we see it. And so it's important uh, to see that in our text of what, what it is Mark is trying to show us. Because Mark presents us with what we could call the paradoxal nature of the gospel. So on the one hand, you have Jesus, this, this man who is mocked and crucified and dying. And on the other hand, you have our king. So just so you know, an earthly king would never be mocked for very long before calling on his armies to come in and crush his mockers. It wouldn't last very long. An earthly king uh, would never allow himself to be crucified Uh, and especially killed unless he was defeated. 
There's no way. He wouldn't give, give it up just on his own because then he's no longer a king. But in Christ, we see something completely different because we see a different kind of king. A king like no other king that has ever ruled uh, before him or after him. He's unlike any ruler that the world uh, has now or any president that we have elected. He's a king who doesn't need campaign speeches. He doesn't need money from outside sources. He doesn't need an election every four years to just remind himself that he is a good leader. Now, he's a king who goes to the very depths of hell for you, literally. And so we see that three ways in our text this morning. And those points can be found in your worship guide if you're taking notes. One is that Jesus is the mocked king. Two is that he is the crucified king. And three, he's the dying king. So mocked, crucified, and dying. The first, the mocked king, in verses 16 through 20, we notice almost right away that everyone present in these particular verses, they misinterpret who Jesus is right off the bat. So these Roman soldiers are called in to take Jesus into custody after his, his guilty verdict is, is put upon him, uh, which, which just gives them a few moments of, of fun to relieve themselves of the tension that they experience in just their boring kind of day-to-day task keeping watch over the crowds and making sure no one gets out of hand. This is something that they kind of look forward to. And so the mocking of Jesus begins with these men. Now, one of the key features of their mocking is to ridicule him based on what he's admitted to back in verse 2. When Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds to him, you have said so. Essentially saying, yes, that is my title. I am the king. And so the fuel to the fire has been given to these Roman soldiers. They put a purple cloak on his back to signify royalty. They give him a crown of thorns. And finally, they begin to sarcastically salute him and declare, Hail, King of the Jews. But while they mocked him as the king, because they didn't believe. He was a king. He was just another man to them. They didn't know that he was the very son of God. They had no idea. This was just another man that they were hired to kill. And as they mocked him as king, at the same time, they are declaring the truth about him as the king. This is the paradox. Something meant to deride him actually points to who he actually is. That's why Mark repeats it three times in those first couple of sections that he's the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. The hymn writer Isaac Watts uh, communicated this this coming together of, of the mockery of Christ's kingship and the truth about his kingship in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Famous hymn, we sing it here at Christ the King. But, but Watts asked this question in the third verse of his hymn. He says, Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns so rich a crown? Did ever love and sorrow meet, or did ever thorns uh, adorn a crown that was meant for Jesus? And the answer is yes. It's right here in verses 16 through 20. 
This is where love and sorrow meet. This is where love and sorrow, you could say, embrace. And it's around Jesus' mocking. So one other aspect of this paradox that I want us to see is is hinted at in Jesus' third foretelling of his death way back in Mark chapter 10. So this is the third and final uh, time that Jesus uh, tells his disciple, this is exactly what is going to happen to me. So and in that instance where he, this is the most detailed part, he tells them that he will be delivered over to a specific people. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He doesn't say he'll be delivered over to the Jews. He says, I will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And that is taking place in these verses right here, in verses 16 through 20. He has, been, he has physically been handed to the Gentiles, these soldiers. Which means the nations, not just the Jews. So I know, I know sometimes we want to think, well, look what the Jews did to him. Look how evil they were. They, they crucified our Lord. But right here it tells us that it was the nations, not only the Jews who have a part in the movement that executed Jesus. So what this means is no one is innocent. There is no one in this room or no one outside this room that is innocent of this act. Even this new little baby Julia that was born in the early hours of the morning is not innocent. All stand guilty before a holy God because all are sinful. All are broken. All have inherited Adam's sin from the very beginning. Yet the paradox is it's the nations that Jesus has come for. It's it's the nations that even after his death and resurrection, it's the nations that Jesus uh, sends his church to. If you remember Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus specifically says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And it's the nations that Jesus says in Revelation 7 that will gather at his heavenly throne. After this I looked, John writes, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the, the, the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the nation's that will proclaim those words. So these are the, one commentator said, these are the major and minor keys of, of, that you hear throughout the gospel. The, ma- the minor key of darkness and suffering that we see Jesus uh, involved in, but the major key of power and victory. And we have to see both the minor and the major key to see the significance of, of Christ's work on the cross. If we don't get one or the other, we miss what is happening on the cross. Which seems which is seen explicitly in our second point that Jesus is the crucified king. Now, at this point in Mark's gospel or any of the gospel accounts, you'd expect the gory details to be spelled out. 
I remember as a kid hearing a pastor uh, walk through what Jesus went through on the cross, um, or starting back when he was before, you know, when he's getting beaten and mocked. Um, and they just kind of described it from a 21st century uh, medical perspective. So everything that Jesus suffered, from the moment he's punched in the face to the moment that he is, he is dying on the cross, everything that he suffered was spelled out in detail. And in medical language, some of you would like really get excited about that. But for me, you know, it was interesting. But at the end of the day, it was not helpful in my understanding of the cross at all. And that might sound a little off to you. You might be thinking, well, we need to understand the brutality. We need to understand what it is that Jesus walked through specifically. And we need to walk through in detail about what happened there. And maybe so. Until you read the gospel accounts. And you realize that none of them highlight these things. And I looked and I, 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 looked, I ran especially to, to Luke, who is a physician, who is the most detailed gospel writer. Not even Luke gives these types of details. And I think the reason it's unhelpful and the reason why the gospel writers probably don't go into great detail is, is because it places the idea of the cross into the hands of other people. It places the idea of the cross into the Romans' hands or into the Jews' hands. And then we begin, I think, to fall into the trap of feeling sorry for poor innocent Jesus and what he had to go through. And it was so unfair. And we minimize what it is that is taking place on the cross. John Stott in his what I think is his magnum opus book, The Cross of Christ, he, he wrote this, of why, of why the cross continues to be this symbol of Christianity and why we haven't switched it to something else that's more appealing or something that's a little bit softer. He writes this, he says, The fact that a cross became a Christian's symbol and that Christians stubbornly refused, in spite of ridicule, to discard it in favor of something less offensive can only have one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus himself. The centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus himself. The crucifixion is Jesus' idea. It is not the devil's idea. It is not the Jews' idea. It is not the Romans' idea. It is the idea of Jesus. And you hear this in Mark's Gospel already as far back as chapter 8 where Jesus first says that he would be betrayed, killed, and rise. At that point in the game, uh, they, they, there's no plan for what, how they're going to kill Jesus. But Jesus knows exactly how he's going to die. We also hear it in Psalm 22 that Clarence read for us Earlier, which is simply just it's a prayer of Jesus prayed through King David for seeing the events that we're currently looking at. Maybe you caught that in Psalm 22. If not, go back and read it today. So by aiming the spotlight away from the, the horrors of the crucifixion, Mark is helping us grasp this theological significance of the cross. 
that it wasn't just an, in, an instrument of death that we kind of look at and then we kind of move on. But there is a theological significance there that Mark is trying to show us. And we see this when we begin to put ourselves into the sandals of the disciples. As they watch the man that they have followed for three years be crucified. Here's a man that they saw calm a storm with just a word. Here's a man that they saw heal the unhealable. Here's a man that they saw cheat death on more than one occasion by raising others from the dead. And here's a man, at least for a few of them, were able to hear audibly God speak from the heavens and say, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And now, it doesn't even seem like He can get Himself down from a tree. What is happening right now? The disciples have to be asking. Why why is Jesus acting like this? Why won't He get Himself down from this cross? And the answer is, Jesus chooses for this to happen. He chooses to save others by choosing not to save Himself. The chief priests in verse 32 point out how ridiculous this is. And their their own mocking of Jesus as He's hanging from this tree, they're just yelling up at Him and mocking Him in all sorts of ways. I'm not sure, I don't know about you, but if I hit my head on the corner of a table and somebody there, maybe it's one of my kids or my wife, asks me if I'm okay, I I will yell curses at them because of my pain that I'm experiencing. I don't want people to ask me that. And so at this time, Jesus is suffering the worst death that anybody could ever experience And they're shouting these curses up at him and they're mocking him. We know nothing of that. But here they are shouting curses up at Jesus and mocking him. And they're they're pointing this out. They're pointing out how foolish this looks. You've done all these great things. You've said all these great things about yourself. And they say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But this is the significance of this whole movement here. The only way crucifixion happens is if the king allows it to happen. So that the the sovereign king of the universe becomes the crucified king for you. Which, of course, leads to our third point, that he's a dying king. In verse 33... Mark notes this unusual event there that darkness has fallen over over the earth. And this wouldn't be much of an observation uh, if it wasn't at an unusual time of day. It, Mark tells us it happens between, uh, between noon and 3 p.m. So noon and 3 p.m., it is the, the highest that the sun is at. It is the brightest part of the day. And Mark records for us that it went black. That darkness covered the entire earth. And so much, this is so unusual that some have tried to explain this as a solar eclipse. That obviously that was a solar eclipse that happened. It was coincidental that Jesus happened to be on the cross, and that was what it was. But according to the time of year that they were in, solar eclipses didn't happen. So it couldn't have been a solar eclipse, or anything else for that matter. 
Mark is recording this for us because this is a supernatural act of God that he's pointing out. It's it's an act that is displaying uh, God's displeasure with the crucifixion of his son, but also an act that uh, that is displaying the judgment upon humanity for crucifying his son. And Mark knows this based on a couple of different places in the scriptures that he communicates just in these words that he's, he's writing here. One is, is in, in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. So Amos the prophet. And this is what Amos says, making uh, prophesying about this day to come. And on that day, the day of judgment, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth. In broad daylight. This is the day that Amos is talking about. Or God is talking about through Amos. Is this particular day. That darkness would cover the earth. That his judgment was coming down upon his son. And then in Exodus chapter 10 verse 21. You're probably familiar with when the curse of darkness comes upon the the, the people of Egypt. And it's just in this description that Mark wants us to see what kind of darkness it was. Because I think we probably will fall into just our own kind of observation of how it gets dark in, 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 in our world. Where you know, we go from you know, the light just kind of receding and it gets dusk and then finally it gets a little bit dark and finally it's pitch black. But even when it's pitch black out at night, it's really not pitch black. You can still see everything around you. You can see the stars in the sky. But this is how Mark wants you to see it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. A darkness to be felt. So the reason we know this is not what this is what that what is happening is not a solar eclipse or that it's not just a normal the normal uh, you know working of the sun going down or anything like that is because of the question that Jesus asked in verse 34 look look at verse 34 Jesus asked this question of his father my god my god why have you forsaken me why have you forsaken me And he asked that question at that moment because Jesus understood Amos chapter 8, verse 9. He understood that the day of judgment was coming. He understood this darkness to be the darkness of God's judgment. And it was coming down upon him. The um, St. Matthew's Passion, which was composed by Johann Sebastian Bach, it has a feature in it, and I'm not sure if you even listened to that, but it has a feature in it that Bach actually invented. And he was a, he was a genius, and so he puts, he puts this, what they call it, a halo of strings, so violin and cello uh, and such, around the, the last sayings of Jesus in, in, this, in this composition, to which there are seven actual last sayings of Jesus. They're not all seen in Mark, but they're spread throughout the Gospel, and I'll just read them here for you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, is one of them. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Dear woman, here is your son. And then, of course, our question for the day, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then I thirst. It is finished. And then finally, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, 
Bach uses those halo of strings around all of the last sayings of Jesus, except the one that we have here in our text today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he does that to symbolize the felt darkness of verse 33. To show us, to show his readers that that this moment was different than all the other moments that Jesus experienced. To show that nothing else that Jesus suffers on the cross compares to the reality of the glory of the Father being removed from his Son. Which is what happens. I remember uh, taking a tour when I was in high school, I think it was in high school, of a cave in Tennessee um, where the guide led us, was leading us through the cave. We all had flashlights, and so it was was pretty dark, but we had flashlights because we could see where we were going. And he led us into this really big open cavern that was underground, completely dark, um, but we had our flashlights. And he had us all line up in a row, all of us hold hands, and he had all of us uh, turn our flashlights off at the exact same time. So, one, two, three, turn the flashlights off. And the darkness that we experienced in that cave was immediate and thick. And no matter how hard you tried, because they told us to try, no matter how hard you tried, you could not see your hand in front of your face. Now, no matter how close you got it, it was a felt darkness. And I'm a bit claustrophobic, so I got a bit nervous in there, but there, there was no way that we, were, that we were going to be able to find our way back to the surface without light. Completely hopeless. And this is where you find yourself without Christ. It's a spiritual darkness, a felt darkness. Even if things are going your way and you find yourself feeling like that you're quite successful and you're happy, and and you are still in this felt darkness. And it's only Christ who can lead you out of that darkness. And the way that he does this is what we are seeing happening right here in Mark's Gospel, is that he does this by climbing down into the darkness after you. Experiencing the darkness himself. He experiences the darkness through the mocking, through the crucifixion, and through his death. Because what he's doing in that is taking on the darkness for you. He takes on the judgment of God's wrath on your behalf. So how do we know that worked? Look at verses 35 through 38. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, putting it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So just in case you're unfamiliar, this curtain of the temple is thick and large. It's uh, guesstimated that it was probably at least 30 feet tall and maybe a couple of feet thick. So it was almost like a wall. 
And it separated the Holy of Holies. This is where the Jews uh, believed that God's glory dwelled. And it separated that part of the temple from the rest of the temple. So it separated the people from the presence of God. Not in a bad way, but in a, in a way to protect them. Because an unholy people cannot go before a holy God without being struck down dead. And the only person who could go into the Holy of Holies was the holiest man, which at that time was considered the high priest. And he could only go from, this man could only come from the holiest of nations, which was the Jewish nation, and he could only go on one day of the year, the holiest day of the year known as Yom Kippur, where he had to offer a blood sacrifice every single time to atone for the sins of the nation. So this curtain was a visual representation of humanity's separation from God. So anyone sinful, anyone in spiritual darkness was separated from God's presence. And the only way to get to him was through the blood of another. So this veil being torn symbolized the way being opened to God. Now that Jesus has died, anyone who believes can now approach God. They didn't need anybody else to go before them. They didn't need the holiest man of the holiest nation to go on the holiest day. They could go before God any time they wanted. How do we know that? Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And with these words, the centurion is professing his faith in Jesus. One commentator noted here that he became the first person to proclaim the deity of Christ. And I know what you're thinking. You're, think, you're thinking, no, 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 I think Peter did that back there in chapter 8. No, I went and looked. Peter does not proclaim the deity of Christ. It's the centurion. The centurion who has just now seen uh, Christ die right before his eyes. This irreligious Gentile proclaims who Jesus is and answers the question correctly, who is Jesus? So here is a man whose profession it is, is to stand next to criminals, uh, convicted criminals, as they are executed. So needless to say, he has watched a lot of people die. I've never seen anyone die. I've never seen a human being die. But this man has watched a lot of people take their last breath. But when he sees Jesus do this, he notices something different. Jesus' death is not the same as all of these other deaths that he's seen. And he's moved by the way in which Christ has died. It says it right there, uh, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he saw a particular way in which Jesus responded to his death. That the centurion professes that Jesus is different even. And he enters into the Holy of Holies, we could say. Now, our response to this is no different. 
Jesus, as Tim Keller says, uh, Mark is pressing the story right up into your ear at this moment. He, he wants, Mark wants you to see and hear the same beauty of the cross that the centurion, centurion saw in her. He wants you to see and hear the king who not only lives a life that you cannot, but he dies a death that was reserved for you by God. Jesus took that for you. And he, and he calls you to respond in the exact same way as our centurion brother. Surely, this is the Son of God. Amen. Let me pray for us.